When I was in graduate school, I served a church that was in a rural community about 25 miles south of Richmond area. And we had several chicken farmers in the church. And one of those chicken farmers was sharing with us that the particular company that they were contracted with to raise chickens, they were brought the baby chicks and given the chicks and told they had X number of weeks to raise them from being baby chicken chicks to being full-grown adult chickens. And then they were going to come back and get the chickens. And the rule basically was the way the farmer made a profit is for every adult chicken that he had ready to be given over to the uh, company, he would be reimbursed or given an amount of money for it. So the idea was that you, of course, wanted to have as many of those adult chickens as possible. Now, there was one big problem in the whole situation. It was simply this. The amount of time that they gave the farmer from when he got the baby chick to when he was supposed to have a full-grown adult chicken ready uh, for the company was not sufficient for that chick to grow into adulthood. It just didn't provide enough time. And so the farmer was in duress because they only had a limited amount of time, but they knew it was not a sufficient amount of time to grow that chicken into adulthood. And so their profit margin was going to be cut into significantly. So this is what the farmer did. They did two things. Number one, they kept the lights on in the chicken house 24 hours a day. And the idea with that was that the chickens never would go to sleep. Uh, they just think it was daylight all the time, so they just kept the lights going. The second thing they did was they put a chemical into the chicken feed. And the idea behind this chemical was that it was to speed the whole metabolism process up with the chickens so that the chickens literally were eating constantly and running around constantly with this sped up metabolism so that they would grow faster and so that they just sort of tried to bypass, if you will, the normal maturation process and speed everything up. Now, there was a problem with that. If you take the body of a chicken and you're putting a chemical into it and you're trying to keep them up 24 hours a day and eating 24 hours a day and going like crazy 24 hours a day so that it grows real quick, that doesn't work too well. And so every day that farmer said he had to go into his chicken house and pick up dead chickens who were having heart attacks because their heart was beating so fast trying to keep up with what this chemical was doing in the artificial atmosphere that had been created that they were just literally dying of heart attacks, and so he was losing X number of chickens every day because of that. Now, that sounds crazy, but that's what they were doing to try to raise them. In fact, the chemical, <laughs> the farmer one day, he was trying to get the, some of this chemical was in a bag to the chicken house, and it bag split and fell out of one of his trees, and it literally killed the tree. So that gives you a really nice idea of what it must have been like. Don't you want to eat chicken after I tell you this story? You know, what was going on with those chickens is a picture of what's going on with a lot of us in American society today. The lights are on 24-7. And we are sort of being artificially stimulated to go at it all the time. In fact, the harder you go, the more you got on the agenda, the more successful we consider people to be. And what that has conditioned us for is to be very impatient. We want life to happen and to happen now. We want everything to happen and happen now. And even though so often life in the normal progression of things may take this much time, 
We want everything to happen in life in this much time. And so we end up having psychological, spiritual, and emotional heart attacks because it's not happening on our schedule. And there's a real problem with God in that God has not decided in this generation that He's going to accommodate us with our schedules. He's still insisting that we accommodate Him on His schedule. And man, that can get frustrating. So how do we make that accommodation with the Lord? How do we adjust to God? Because God's not going to adjust to us. And the reason God's not going to adjust to us is He didn't design us physically, emotionally, etc. to run at this crazy pace all the time. And He doesn't adjust His kingdom to operate at this crazy pace all the time. Well, He wants to work something in us that sounds like a nasty word in our culture today. It is the word patience. He wants to affect and work and develop patience in our lives. In Galatians 5.22, we've been looking at the fruits of the Holy Spirit, and we've seen that there are the first three fruits are habits of the mind, and they are love, joy, and peace. Love being a commitment to folks, joy being a reaction on our part to what God is doing around us, and peace being a wholeness and a basic contentment in life. Now, we're next moving today to look at those fruits of the Spirit produced in our lives and how we relate to other people. And the first one we're going to look at is patience. If we will learn to be patient with God, patient with ourselves, and patient with other people, it's amazing what God can do. And if we are impatient with God, impatient with ourselves, and impatient with other people, it's amazing how we can mess up relationships and mess up situations. Patience goes a long way to allowing the Lord to accomplish what He wants to accomplish. And so he says to the church of Galatia in Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. Now in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, which is where I'd like for you to turn right now, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is going to show us how patience finds its way in expression. How God causes that patience to find expression. As you're turning there, let's define patience. The word patience in the New Testament is the idea of being long-tempered. We've heard of people having a short fuse. This is having a long fuse. It's a quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation, which doesn't hastily retaliate or promptly punish someone. In other words, as God is developing patience within me, I'm going to learn to practice self-restraint, even when I am provoked. And we're going to see this with Paul in just a moment. I don't act to retaliate against people when I'm irritated, hurt by them, frustrated by them. I don't look to try to punish people. It's having staying power. But please hear me on this. Patience is not just biding time. I'm not just sitting there chewing on my tongue trying to wait something out. The idea of patience is rather rooted in the sovereignty of God. It is the idea that I am patient because I am waiting on the Lord and have faith in the Lord to accomplish in His sovereign will and time what He knows He is seeking to accomplish and to bring completion of a situation to His glory. I am patient because I believe that God is at work. 
even when I cannot see what he's doing and even when I don't understand what he's doing, I trust him that he is at work and that he is moving a situation in the direction that he wants to move it in in such a way that he's glorified by it. So I say, Lord, I'm going to be patient in this. I'm going to wait. And the reason I'm going to wait is because I'm waiting on you. And I'm trusting you, God, in this situation, with this person, with this relationship, or whatever it happens to be, that you are accomplishing your will on your schedule to your glory in your way. Now, I may not see it. I may not understand it. It may even confuse me and frustrate me. But, Lord, I believe that you are at work, and I am trusting that you are at work. And I am going to be discerning and praying to discern the evidences of what you were doing, God. Totally open to the fact that what you're doing may be very different than the way that I would do it. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Apostle Paul is struggling with the issue of being patient. And look what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, the context of this passage is Paul talks about being caught up into the third heaven. And he says, basically, when he went to the third heaven, and there was an occasion in the book of Acts where Paul was left for dead, and he was caught up into what we would call heaven. And he says, I heard things that were so great they cannot be repeated. I saw things so wonderful and awesome that I cannot relate those. But he says, God has given me all these awesome revelations of his greatness and his goodness. But you know what comes with that? There's a tendency to get conceited. Man, look what I know. Look what I've seen. Look what I've experienced. And he says, in order for God to keep me humble, he gave me this thorn in the flesh. Now, the word thorn there could also be translated splinter. Have you ever had a splinter in your hand or somewhere on you? They are aggravating. They are agitating. It looks like it takes forever to get them out of you. They hurt like crazy. Every time you think maybe the pain subsided, it comes back on you again. They can get infected. So he says, I got this thorn, and it is in my flesh. Now, we don't really know what the thorn was that Paul had in his flesh. You name it, and there's a theory about what it was. Some have said that it was eye trouble. Others think that he may have had migraines, other epilepsy. No one's really quite sure what it was, but Paul had it, and he kept it. Verse 7, he says, this thorn harasses me. And the word harass there literally means to strike something with, a, with clenched hands. In other words, Paul is saying, this thorn that's in my flesh, that's afflicting me, is slapping me in my face over and over and over again. And he said, I go to the Lord, and I've been to the Lord three times, and I've asked the Lord every time I go, would you get rid of this? Would you take this out of my life? And God says to me every time, no, no, no. Now, we love to talk about deliverance, and we love to rejoice in deliverance. 
And we like to say, I prayed and God delivered me from this or delivered me from that. But in Paul's case, he kept going to the Lord and saying, God, would you deliver me from this person or this situation or whatever this thorn in the flesh was? Would you deliver me from this? And God said no. In fact, the, the Greek language on the end of this gives the idea that God said no to him with finality. I'm not going to take this out of your life. And God does not obligate himself to take the thorns out of our lives. We like to say he does. We like to try to harass him, if you will, to do that or talk him into it, but often God doesn't. And it's the easiest thing in the world to stand up here and say, well, God's going to deliver you from any and everything, but often God says, I'm not going to deliver you from this. You're going to have to continue to struggle with this. You're going to have to continue to agonize with this. And listen, the reason God does that often is the reason he did it with Paul. He's keeping us humble. I want you to write this down. Anything God does in your life to keep you humble is a blessing. Anything God does in your life to keep you humble is a blessing. Now, it normally doesn't look like a blessing, feel like a blessing, but anything God does in our lives to keep us humble is a blessing. I had a teacher who used to tell me when I was growing up, God will never humiliate you, but he will humble you. God will never humiliate you, but he will humble you. And anything God does to keep us humble is a blessing. It may be a blessing in disguise, but it is a blessing because it keeps us open before Him. God cannot use prideful people. God can only use humble people. And He will do what He has to to keep us humble. Verse 8, Paul says, I went to the Lord, I said, would you remove it? And then it says, He said to me. And the idea of the word said there is this is the final decision. I'm not pulling this out of your life. But notice what God does say in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm not going to take this out of your life, but I am going to give you my grace, and it will be more than sufficient for you to keep this thorn. Now, what is the grace of God? It's the love of God, the mercy of God, the presence of God, the power of God, the glory of God all wrapped into one. That's the grace of God. And he says, my grace is going to be sufficient. Folks, God's grace, his love, his glory, his power, his person, all that he is, his grace is always sufficient. We just have to discover that sufficiency. And notice where Paul says he discovers the sufficiency of God's grace. Verse 9, he says, my power, God is saying to Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. My power, that experience of God's grace is made perfect, it's finished, it's completed, it's matured. Where? In your weakness. God works in our lives to take us to the place of seeing our weakness, experiencing our weakness, walking in our weakness for the purpose of you and I experiencing His grace. And it's at that place of weakness that then becomes mixed with His grace that we then begin to walk and live in the power of God. We like to think we go from power to power, but it doesn't work that way. We go from weakness to power. And so when God works in our lives to bring us into touch with where we are weak, 
It is because he's wanting to get us to the place of walking in his power. Now, follow me on this. When you and I are taken to a place of weakness in life, if we are not careful, what we will try to do is substitute our power in there. And when we try to substitute our power into a place of our weakness, we end up with fake power that does nothing but frustrate us in the long run. What I need to do when I get to a place of weakness in my life is say, Lord, you're getting me in touch with this place of weakness. And God, this is the place that I need to experience, and you're showing me that I need to experience your grace. I need the experience of your power here, Lord, so that I can start living and walking in your power in this place in my life, Lord, and not any longer in my weakness. Now notice what he says in verse 9. He says, the power of Christ may do what? Rest upon me. The power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, God's bringing me to this place of weakness so I can know his strength and power so that his power can rest upon me. Now, the word translated rest there is a fascinating word. It means to put a tent over something. Let me give you two ideas that abound up in this word. First of all, in the ancient world of that day, they didn't have a whole lot of housing like we've got today, and so tents were a very popular way of living. A lot of people were nomadic, and they spent a lot of time in tents. And so when you pitched your tent over something, it meant you were going to stay there, and the tent was for the purpose of protecting you and helping you out, sheltering you, etc. So the idea here is he's saying when I'm weak, then I experience the grace of God, and the grace of God, the power of Christ, literally pitches a tent over top of my life. Now the second idea behind this word here, that the power of God is going to tent over you or rest over you, goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, they had a place of worship that was called the tabernacle. Later it became a permanent structure called the temple. Now the tabernacle was nothing but a big, huge tent where the people went to meet with God until something very significant happened. And that was that when they, once they got the tabernacle built, they dedicated it. What was called the Shekinah glory of God, the manifested glory of God came on that tent and rested on that tent and engulfed that tent and surrounded that tent and when the people saw the glory of God being manifested in that tent and on that tent, they knew God was with them. Now that's the idea of the word that he uses here. He says, verse 9, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It is the idea that I am weak. I ask for the experience of his grace. And then he surrounds me with his glory. He surrounds you with his strength, his power, his love. Now let me folks, let me see, I can't see this hard enough to you. Getting to that place is not an easy journey. We wrestle to get there, we struggle to get there, we agonize to get there because none of us likes the journey of weakness. But God's not taking you on a journey of weakness because he's trying to make your life miserable. He's taking us on a journey of weakness to get us to his strength so that we will experience firsthand in our lives the sufficiency of who he is. So that we can stand 
in the midst of whatever we're going through, and I say stand, not lie down on our face, not have our back end kicked in, but we can stand at that place and say, He's sufficient. His grace is more than sufficient because I am experiencing right now firsthand the sufficiency of who He is. pastor of National Presbyterian Church wrote a book years ago on experiencing unwanted change in our lives, and he shares a story that one day he was in a hurry to get all the different things done in his life that needed to get done. And he had this nursing home visit he needed to make to this little blind lady named Miss Lenz. Miss Lenz had been a member of National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. For, for years and years and years. And she was now confined to a nursing home she couldn't see. Been a widow for, for decades. And he was in a hurry and he was going to serve the Lord's Supper to her. And he rushed in there and he sat down. And as he was getting the juice and the bread out, he spilled some of the juice on his pants. And he thought, oh, great, now i got to go take that to the cleaners. And just rushing through everything. And he offered Miss Lynn the juice. And she took it and he said, you know, this is my body broken for you and gave her the bread. And he said he was packing things up and he was getting ready to finish up with Miss Lynn's and she began to pray in her weakness. And this is what Miss Lynn said. I thank you, God, for loving me. I thank you, God, that I am not forgotten. And he said, I stopped. My whole day stopped. I thank you, God, for loving me. I thank you, God, that I am not forgotten. He was hearing the strength of the grace of God from a blind lady in a nursing home. And folks, don't look for necessarily any great big theological revelation when God gives you His grace. Look for the experience of knowing deep in your soul you're loved by Him and you are not forgotten. And in the midst of weakness, we can confess, thank you, Jesus, that you love me. And thank you, Jesus, that I am not forgotten. Lord, help us to know, Lord, in those moments when we just sort of want to throw in the towel on life, that we are not forgotten. You love us, teach us your patience. In your name we pray, amen.